called? I'm called the Jesse James. Jesse, aka the Bizzle. Yo, the Bizzle. Thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle. Thank you, the Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast, welcome back to the Bizzlecast. It's good to be with you and alive. I hope you guys are well um, all across the world. Um, and uh, uh, I do um, very much appreciate uh, y'all's uh, support over this past year. Um, I know I haven't been putting out as much. I have been working with some of my senior contributors, but tonight we have a very special guest who's a first-timer. It's been a while since I've had a, a true first-timer um, on the show. Uh, it will be helpful because he himself is a, a, a caster of, of sorts, as uh, we uh, will uh, talk about on the podcast. Tonight's topic is gaming and streaming games and the past, present, and future of games and war gaming and hopefully some Warhammer 40k if you guys are lucky. Um, and uh, it's one of my favorite streamers, uh, indie streamers that I discovered a bunch of months back now. Um, so please welcome to the Bizzlecast Banked, aka Hjalfner, uh, Hjalf, I probably butchered all of those uh, names right there, so hopefully you'll stay on the <laughs> podcast nevertheless. Yeah, hi there. Happy to be here. Um, so, uh, so, uh, uh, Hjalf, uh, is, um, a, uh, wargamer, um, on, online, I mean, which is how I, I know him, it's not his full-time job, that would be great, maybe someday, um, but, uh, and I stumbled across him, because I'm always looking for indie streamers who are doing not the same thing that other streamers are doing, and I just really loved the approach he wears funny helmets uh, from historical, uh, actual historical wars, uh, and uh, he, he's just a very funny and fun-loving guy, even while conquering the world and bombing millions of people virtually, of course. Um, and, and we're going to talk a, a, a little bit about. Um, well, we're going to lot. Uh, we're going to start by talking about uh, your your history, man, a little bit, just to get a sense of how you got into all this. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit more broadly about the genre, gaming in general, Switch streaming, the sort of revival uh, and return of, of strategy games and hard strategy games, which is something I grew up on. Um, and Imthrill is like, you know, kind of, um, well, we'll see what you think. I, I think it's sort of back in the last few years because of companies like Paradox Interactive who make a bunch of the games that you play, uh, among other things. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about where we think gaming is headed in the future. So you are from Germany, my man. You are a family man, um, and uh, you're still able to make time for everything. Um, so just really quickly, um, uh, for the Bizzlecast listeners, y'all, just give a little background um, about, uh, uh, you know, uh, how, how, where, where you started um, sort of in life, and uh, then also how, how you got into gaming back in, in the day. Uh, you're a little bit younger than me, even though 
I don't have a family, uh, and you have your life much more together than I do. So it, it's not going to sound like a Bizzlecast listeners for those of you who know me. He's a little bit younger than me, but we're mostly from the same, you know, crossover of generation a little bit with some of the, uh, the games and so forth. Um, and so we we'll get into that. But sorry, just, just introducing yourself, uh, where you're from originally, and uh, uh, how you got into uh, such a great and super nerdy habit uh, that is wargaming yeah well uh i'm from northern germany actually uh the pretty much super flat plain of lower saxony where basically all the crops of germany are grown and apples lots of apples (laughs) um and uh yeah how did i get into history basically at one point my dad got annoyed by me asking a bunch of stuff about various ruins and so on i mean it's germany you have a castle ruin everywhere around the corner and um he just dropped a bunch of historical magazines on me and I started reading through them like I think at one point I reached like 400 pages per day wow. when he handed a book to me <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well uh, I got stuck on a magazine about the uh, Greco-Persian Wars and the Greco-Persian reason... Wars interesting yeah. I-, I love that stuff yeah yeah, it sparked a bunch of legends and, of course, and semi-realistic stuff. Like, I, mean, I think 300 brought, and brought us really into the pop culture now. Sure. Uh, nice movie. Of course, absolutely not realistic. Yeah. <laughs> I love realism in history. Yeah. Yeah. But in that case, it's fine. Uh-huh. But, yeah, that brought me into it. And then came stuff like the first Age of Empires. Yes. Uh, I loved the whole yes. period so much i got that from my parents and from that went on age of empires to command and conquer and uh when that got too easy i switched to total war and then that got too easy and then i ended up in wargaming stuff like the paradox grand strategy games and yes. even more intricate stuff like the panzer core series and so on yeah i want to of course start talking about age of empires and command and conquer and so forth because that we share in common have talked a lot about um and uh was the gateway for me as well of course i never got so great at those games that i uh went you know numerous more steps as you described while i play the paradox games uh, sort of uh, casually for fun and, and like the the little bit more um, spacey easier ones like Stellaris and, and, and the Mars game and so forth I've dabbled in, in some of the war games that we're gonna talk about especially Hearts of Iron which is what you stream mostly um, uh, re- at least in the past few months and, and we'll get there but really quickly dude before we get into those early games because that was such a key time in gaming in, in general um, and I want to explore that a little bit. Um, you mentioned uh, magazines and books. Uh, I have a couple questions along these lines uh, when you're growing up. Were there movies or TV shows, uh, either German ones or um, uh, you know American uh, Commonwealth ones that, uh, that made it to Germany uh, that you watched uh, growing up um, uh, th- that were influential to you? Or was it mostly books, mag- you know, like reading and then straight into games? It was a lot of the books, and then, of course, the movies that fit, to, or rather were made from those books. Uh, I was a huge fan at the time. Nowadays, I look at that, and I'm a bit taken aback when I read them again. Uh, the Karl May books, pretty much, I think, the most successful German author worldwide. 
I don't know if he's that well known actually internationally, but he's very he was very successful at the time. Mm. He was writing um, novels about uh, adventure novels about traveling through the world and yeah, living in adventure space. It's sort of Indiana Jones, but German and with a very "I'm the good white guy" attitude. So it hurts to read these books nowadays. But at the time, it was nice uh, cowboy and uh, Native American adventure stuff. Uh, that is very cringy. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, but they made some pretty interesting movies out of that that have the same problem as all movies from the 50s and 60s. Sure. Uh, but they influenced my interest, especially later on in the American Civil War. And um, international series, not so much, actually. I got a lot into Dragon Ball, I have to admit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was a teenager. Because yeah. who didn't, I guess. Why not? Um, well, I did it because I'm I'm like, I, I'm that exact age where things like Pokemon, Dragon Ball, Power Rangers, and so forth dropped exactly after I was too old for all that. Um, mm. So I'm the one who grew up on the original G.I. Joe, Transformers, etc. in the 80s. Um... But, you know, by uh, by the mid-90s, I was, you know, uh, watching things like Braveheart and Th Thin Red Line and so, and so <laughs> forth. Um, uh, uh, actually, I have a question about this because this is uh, – we do talk video games on this podcast, um, although it's somewhat sporadic. It's You know, we talk mostly film and TV, um, uh, or we try and work in film and TV questions. Uh, my other question about this, and then we'll get into the actual gaming part of this, is um, – so you mentioned 300. Uh, Bizzlecast listeners know I don't like Zack Snyder's uh, filmmaking. I understand why mm. other people do. That was certainly stylistically influential. Um, and, you know, I think that with a couple of his other films have been stylistically influential. I The sort of overly macho screaming and everything being read in slow motion, like, that's just not really my style. But... I appreciate what was being done there, but my question before I start bashing Zack Snyder again, because he's a lovely guy, and apparently the nine-hour Justice League was quite good. I haven't had a chance to watch that. Um, is as as a war gamer guy, and we'll get into this more later in terms of realism and, and uh, what defines realism in war games. Is it more important that it feels real? Is it more important that it acts real? You know what I'm saying? The, uh, that it simulates. Uh, reality in terms of what actually happened or what could have happened based on technology, blah, blah, blah. So my question here, uh, just to briefly uh, talk about movies, is do you almost prefer uh, like over-the-top stuff that has a historical basis, like 300, because it's not even trying to be real, as opposed to something like you know, Saving Private Ryan or Dunkirk, which purport to be, uh, uh, you know, hard, quote-unquote, war movies. But as, a, you know, as a war historian, you might be tempted to pick it apart. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, just to, to, to give a, um, a, 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 core, a um, comparative example for myself, I'm a philosophy and religion guy, studied in college and university and at the graduate level. And so I love movies that have tons of, you know, crazy, weird philosophy and religion, um, uh, um, but also hard science and cosmology 
And so, you know, uh, when, when it's just half-baked as, like as like a sheen over it to make it seem deep or so forth, I'd rather they just not even try it. You, you know what I mean? I, go for entertainment. So does that make any sense to you? Like, can you watch a movie that is visceral? Like, Saving Private Ryan is one that comes up a lot in this country because there's a lot of controversy about whether um, that's a good movie or not uh, and whether it's an accurate movie. Um, so do, do, do you tend to, to watch anything that's sort of historically uh, interesting that way or, or are you very uh, um, uh, particular about um, how things are portrayed and, and what appeals to you in, in that sense? Actually, Saving Private Ryan had a huge influence on me when I got to watch it. I think I was 12. When I got my hands on it, it on did, it did me I, too. I Excuse me, it did it, me too. Yeah. I was just bringing that up as an example because it's one that's always in the discussion yeah. here. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's a good example because, of course, at the time I, I was twelve and I actually got it on VHS, and uh, by my grandma, who had no idea what she's actually getting her hands on. <laughs> um, guys, <laughs> guys getting shot in the head. It. Yeah, exactly. But um, it's a good example, of course. Over the time. It, when you get more knowledge on the topic and so on, you notice the, the issues the movie has. And uh, I mean, nowadays I look at the tiger and I'm really, okay, that's not a tiger tank, but that's not that important. It is, it's great cinematic work. And especially the opening scene of the beaches in Normandy is absolutely, is great. Uh, yeah. from Both from the cinematic uh, perspective. Yes. Realism, it has some quirks there, like the bunkers are not exactly all they were there at Omar Beach, but... I can, as far as you can enjoy such a brutal scene, I can enjoy it because it's a very good depiction of what happened there compared to others. Yes. And I can appreciate the cinematic, uh, cinematography that went into it and the work. So I have to admit, I prefer movies that at least try to be accurate. Yes. Over movies that overdo it and don't even try. Yes. So it's better to try and fail than yes. not even to try and do something that looks cool. Yes, and actually, uh, when that movie came out, there were lots of stories in this country about World War II veterans who were at Normandy who actually had to walk out of the movie because it affected them viscerally so much they couldn't even watch it. It was like bringing back flashbacks. Um, yeah. So that's that, that's a pretty. Uh, I mean, it's it's sad and disturbing, but that's a pretty high recommendation for sort of the realism of the feel of that movie. Um, uh, you know, despite you know the, these tanks being here and the blah 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 that being there, um, we'll talk more about the nerdy tech stuff when we get to uh, with Hearts of Iron. Um, but one of the reasons I love uh, the Dunkirk uh, by Christopher Nolan uh, or mm -hmm. or the Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick is. It definitely tries to feel real, but the focus on those movies is really purely character-based. Um, and the events, the plot, and where they go in the movie is to serve what's going on. For example, in Dunkirk, all Tom Hardy is doing the whole time is flying a plane, saying nothing, and trying not to get shot down. Um, 
but you really get it. He's such a brilliant actor. You really get inside his head of what that would feel like, you know, being one of a few pilots trying to save, you know, so many people or the people on the beach. You know, there were some very exciting action scenes, but a lot of it was just sort of waiting around and the tension of it. And, you know, that some of them were selfish and just wanted to get away and not help their friends and come back like Killian Murphy's character. So from uh, that's just a thing with me with movies in general is I, I'm much more interested in, in sort of a, a character and dialogue and writing and, and the feel of it. Um, and, and I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, I can't speak to sort of how accurate the, the nitty-gritty details of Dunkirk were, uh, but I really appreciated that. I, I felt like I was... Uh, how should I say this? It it felt like feeling the experience. That's not the most articulate way of saying it, but I really felt like I was there, just the way at the beginning of uh, Saving Private Ryan, um, I, I I felt like I was there uh, as well. Um, and uh, you know, I I actually wish we got some more smaller war movies these days. One of my greatest movies on my list of greatest movies of all time is The Hurt Locker. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, with Jeremy Renner as the bomb diffuser in, in, in Iraq yeah. uh, with Anthony mm. Mackie. It won Best Picture uh, in this country. Um, and Because uh, all it is is one squad in Iraq, and the whole movie is just tense music, and you're waiting, is the bomb going to go off or not? And I imagine that's what it feels like, to, you know, to spend 18 months at a time diffusing bombs, you know, in the Middle East or whatever. And so to me, that's actually a consummate war movie, even though it's not Apocalypse Now with 90,000, you know, extras. You know what I mean? Um, and <laughs> yeah. actually, I, I, Apocalypse Now is an interesting example because... It didn't even really try to be, uh, you know, accurate to the letter um, wh whatsoever, but it certainly tried to be accurate in just the insanity of that entire endeavor in Vietnam and what it would feel to be like a normal person within that insanity um, and so forth. Um, either of those two uh, ones that you enjoy or along those lines of what I would sort of call a psychological war movie um, uh, uh, where it's really trying to get into the head, head of the soldiers? Yes, definitely. I enjoy that very much. Um, I remember that I watched Apocalypse Now Redux when I was in my teens. Mm. Um, that was a very interesting experience because uh, I have to admit, I had a, I think, very German perspective on the Vietnam War. There was a um, German journalist at the time who had served in the French Foreign Legion post-World War II in Vietnam in the First Indochina War. Um, and had then become a journalist for the German um, state television agency, the second one, and um, had gone back as a journalist for the, the second Indochina War, the Vietnam War, as you mostly call it, and got even captured by the Viet Cong. Oh, wow. And stayed with them for a week and was allowed to record, and uh, they even sent back his tapes via the East German Embassy in North Vietnam. And huh. that was a very interesting perspective. And the book he wrote over that, he had very deep insight into the local culture. But it's all was all a bit colored, of course, the typical problem at the time. But that was interesting. And Apocalypse Now Redux uh, basically shifted my focus over to the experience of the U.S. soldiers there. Sure. And to a degree, of course, the civil, civilian population. That was a very interesting shift in perspective, how that war affected soldiers on both sides in the end. What's really, I like that. What's really interesting is, you know, 
we go in to clean up the French's mess as usual. And uh, we kill probably two million Vietnamese horrifically. We lose a lot of soldiers. You know, even though we lost way more in World War II, I mean, let's put it this way. We've lost almost 10 times as many people to COVID as we lost in Vietnam. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, as you know, in war, the, the number of people who die is less important in sort of historical memory uh, than how they died. Um, and, and, you know, and, and just sort of the... Uh, you know, I mean, like, let's put it this way. Even really lefty liberals in this country would never argue that we should not have gone into World War II. I mean, historically, it's obvious we needed to go to World War II. Whereas Vietnam, there's still debate in this country. Um, and that was the last war uh, where American soldiers were treated like cannon fodder. Um, and the culture completely changed uh, since then, where whether you're on the left or the right in this country, you have to support the troops even if you don't support the war. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, and so e- even, you know, those of us who, you know, protested the Iraq war and the long Afghanistan invasion and so forth in various ways, you know, it was never about uh, the troops because, you know, you probably know this, even though the troops of Vietnam were drafted, they were treated like enemies of the state when they came back, even though they had no choice by hippies and left wingers. Um, and, uh, you know, that really uh, started what we call the culture wars in this country um, about, you know, um, uh, the right wing gaining traction as being sort of the more patriotic party. Anyways, I won't go too far into that. I will say, though, uh, uh, just as we just talk briefly about the complexities of war and then we'll get into the gaming of war, which is, <laughs> I, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago, uh, Vietnam started becoming a very popular place for Americans to become tour- to be tourists. And I remember at the yeah. time being like, why the shit would these people ever want us to come back? And I talked with a Vietnamese-American friend of mine, and they told me that the prevailing view in Vietnam is as horrifying as what we did was there. They still hate the French way more than the Americans and blame the French for everything. Um, <laughs> uh, and- oh, sorry. No, no, <laughs> you're good. You're great. You're great. The sounds wanted outside and something to drink. It it, wor- it works perfectly because the Twitch uh, the Twitch stream decided to go from green to red very briefly, which happens uh, probably because I'm streaming Twitch on like four devices right now, and they don't love that. But you know what? They have to deal with it. So. Um, uh, so, okay. I have one final question along the, these lines and we'll run into gaming. You ready to go? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, uh, a question that we're not really going to have time for, and this is something that we could have like a 90 episode podcast series about. <laughs> um, I, I, I do want to say, guys, we're not going to get too political here. It's going to be a little tough because the game we're going to talk about a bit, Hearts of Iron, is undoubtedly political, although it tries to be as apolitical as possible and possibly the most political war of all time. Uh, I don't know if I'll have time to, to talk about all that. Um, but one thing I like um, about Hjalf is um, you are such an educated and open-minded guy um, when it comes to... Let me put it this way. 
in terms of the average Euro-American, I want to put Americans and Europeans together. In terms of the average white people countries that rule the world, the Euro-Americans, um, you uh, uh, are extremely open-minded when it comes to you know r r racial equality, gender equality, and so forth. Uh, you know, I, I, as you know, I've had some sort of uh, fun, what I consider fun and funny spats on your Discord occasionally uh, w with more traditionalists. Although you have a pretty good following overall in terms of in intelligence and brains of your followers, at least, uh, which is a credit to you. Um, but whenever we bring, uh, uh, or I would bring up a historical point on your stream or off stream, you're very fair and balanced and you have a good understanding. And, and what I would consider, what we call liberal in this, or progressive, which is what I am politically. And, you know, I don't put words in your mouth. In this country, you would be a liberal progressive. Um, and something I've talked about um, is, you know, people, you know, I, I've had some unofficial uh, military training. I know how to shoot guns. I study military history. I love, you know, uh, studying about uh, weaponry and um, in past, present, and future. And uh, it's important, uh, that, you know, that people understand that you can be really into to, to military history. And that doesn't make you, you know, a, a, um, a militant person necessarily. Uh, and so I just wanted to, uh, uh, say that, um, about you, but I have to ask, uh, and this will, like I said, could be 90, <coughs> excuse me, podcast. We'll do it real quick and then we'll get into, uh, Age of Empires in the, in the, in your gateway games, which is, I hate to have people self-diagnose on the podcast, but I have to ask, um, is you, is you being German, um, the same way me being American uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, self-aware of my Americanness and being a white American and a privileged white American forces me to think about imperialism and, and, and so forth. Um, you being an intelligent guy that just happened to be born and grow up in Germany, so sort of the legacy of uh, you know, the world wars, but even further back, you know, Germany's sort of um, l legacy as uh, involved in wars, but also very advanced, highly advanced technologically um, in, in terms of things like physics and so forth. Does your Germanness figure in or did it when you were younger in into your interest in military history uh, or, or is that just incidental? Ah, that's a big question. Yeah, and I understand what you said that we would need quite a few episodes for that, probably. Um, but yeah, being German in general factors a lot into yeah your development. When 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 you're interested in military history in Germany, you always get a side eye. I think we are one of the most pacifistic countries in the world nowadays. <laughs> um, You're certainly trying to be from a PR standpoint. There's no question about it. Yeah. And that has <clears throat> severe drawbacks as soon as you get interested into the, such topics. It, it has gotten better over the years, but it's still pretty much there. Um, yeah. I mean, it probably puts it into perspective how much... Uh, the whole German thing, be it World War Two, World War One, and everything that came before it, but it's all right in your face here in Germany. Not only in school, of course, we learn about the Holocaust, about World War Two, how the, how the Weimar Republic played out, and so on. But it's that is abstract. And yeah. when you grow up here, you run into that stuff in person. Uh, as an example, as a child, I played in the woods here, and um, I think 
about a kilometer from here, I found ruins. It was like concrete in the hill, set huh. into the hill. Huh. And uh, asked my father about it. He started to search for some stuff and found out it was uh, a shooting range for the Volkssturm in World War II. Huh. And uh, they stuffed it full of ammunition when the Brits advanced into the area and blew it up, which is where the forest now grows. So huh. that was actually an old ammunition bunker. Huh. Um, about 30 kilometers from here is Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp where, um, uh, now I forgot her name. Oh, that's, that's almost unforgivable. Uh, the Dutch girl that got so famous. Uh, oh, and, and Frank? Yeah. Yeah. She died there. That's where she died. Uh, that's 30 kilometers from here. So obviously I went there as a child twice uh, from school and that has an impact and even in the backyard of the house I'm living in now, when my uh, parents were building it, during playing around, I found three live MG rounds from World War II in the ground. Huh. It's literally right here. So, huh. yes, it plays into that very much. And it has impact. It, it's, it's a big controversy in Germany, even how much impact all the past wars we trigger to a degree, <laughs> large degree. <laughs> Yeah. Um, half yeah. on us and on the education. Yeah. Yeah. It, it will save the wider discussion here. Um, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, you know, Germany has as diverse a political spectrum as anywhere uh, it, it did in the past and does currently. Um, and we'll talk more about this uh, when we get to Hearts of Iron in a couple minutes, um, which is that. Uh, you can be uh, very interested in the the uh, the military um, uh, part of you know like the German army, somewhat separate from the Holocaust, which is what the game tries to do uh, in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with, but I understand what they're doing. Um, uh, but also like World War One, you know, like Germany tends to get a bad rap with World War One, and you really look at the situation, you know what I mean. Uh, it's more complicated than that, um, and uh, you know, I I found Germans uh, in my own personal experience, uh, and maybe just internationalism because I have never been to Germany, so I meet them in America and other European countries tend to be some of the most sensitive uh, people uh, towards these topics, um, which you know is great, uh, but you know it is not something that it is necessarily. Um, you can or should expect. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's awesome that you guys have an internal discussion that's still going on about that because a lot of countries would just want to forget and bury everything. Um, and it's, it's, it's impressive that, that Germany d- doesn't, um, uh, at least in, in some areas. So, okay, let's jump into games unless you got anything to say about that. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Depends. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, uh, so you're a few years younger than me. Based on Age of Empires, you started gaming, what, mid to late 90s-ish? Yeah, mid, mid to late 90s. Mid 90s, okay. first games played on others' PCs, and late 90s, my own first games, yeah. Okay. So, I'm not going to go through uh, a whole history of video games here. Uh, Bizzlecast listeners, uh, but um, uh, in uh, in the eighties, um, 
uh, I guess I started gaming sort of late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I, I wasn't allowed to have consoles, but I was allowed to have a computer. Um, and, uh, and computer games, um, you know, back then had certain kinds of game and consoles, certain kind of games. So I didn't have Mario Brother or Zelda, but I did have a whole wide range of role-playing games like Wizardry and Might and Magic and Ultima and so forth. And I also had a whole bunch of classic, um, you know, strategy games like Master of Orion and Civilization, uh, which is still around. Now, of course, you can get all these games on console and you get console games on the PC. It wasn't like that back then. Um, but the, 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 um, uh, in terms of our talking about games that are uh, real-time strategy uh, or have real-time strategy elements, uh, there were really two major ones that I think historically is pretty obvious that moved from the my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn um, uh, way that games like Civ uh, works, but also the hardcore g- games like, you know, Panzer General, and I can't even remember all them, the hex-based, you know, uh, uh, war games, uh, and so forth. Uh, side note, I- I'm sure you know that back then you could, like, email play games uh, with one another, you know, because it was so hard to do multiplayer, uh, which is pretty funny to think about now when everyone has high speed. But, uh, I think the two uh, first big real-time strategy games um, were actually the, the game Dune, uh, with the movie coming up, which is really interesting. So, before there were Command and Conquer, so the two classic ones from the 90s that everyone knows about are Command and Conquer series and the Warcraft slash Starcraft series. But the first one was Dune, which was by the people who developed at least the first Command and Conquer game, if I'm not mistaken, and you were harvesting spice as opposed to Tiberium or whatever the fuck it's called. And then, of course, the first Warcraft. Um, uh, and that, of course, then led to Warcraft 2, which set all sorts of records, and then Command and Conquer, which set all sorts of records. Both of those games were two of the first that you could play over a modem, and it actually worked really well, and I would with friends and so forth. Um, uh, and they were, but they were mostly war games. You harvest resources, you build armies, and you throw them at each other. Uh, but then uh, you started to get games like Age of Empires, which I want you to talk about because those are some of the early ones you mentioned, where you're doing civilization in terms of the game, civilization-esque activities, but in real time, which requires a whole different part of your brain than just throwing soldiers um, at, at one another. Uh, so... Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into uh, this genre. Uh, first of all, were you aware of sort of the, I don't know, like uh, sort of history uh, of what led into Age of Empires or and stuff? I mean, you did play Command and Conquer um, or, or your understanding of, of sort of where this genre came from at the time. No, I had absolutely no idea where it came from. Uh, I had a rough idea because I realized that the mechanics were similar to something my friend had been playing on his, of all things, Sega Mega Drive. And that was Dune 2, the one you just meant. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> that was actually released for Sega Mega Drive. And um, I had seen it there, so the concept of real-time strategy was actually not new to me when um, I got Age of Empires 1. Um, but it was nonetheless a very new experience I had until then. I think only played chess, battle chess. You probably know that one. Yes. Um, with my uh, with my parents. I know it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, basically the game that financed uh, the first Fallout game. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, but no, I had no idea what kind of development had gone through the whole genre of strategy games until then. Um, I'm just thinking about I've played I've played it I played Con- Mountain Conquer previously and a bit of course the Dune two on Se- uh, Sega Mega Drive, but when I got my hands on Age of Empires one, that was something really new for me. Mm. What um. What attracted to you uh, attracted you to that game versus a more uh, you know straight up um, throw soldiers at each other game or um, a, a more uh, tur- uh, a turn based uh, grand strategy game uh, like Civ, which of course you know we're gonna get <laughs> very soon into grand strategy games, but Age of Empires really struck that balance between grand strategy and you know real time strategy you know. Uh, uh, action war games, for lack of a better uh, term. What was it about those games? It wasn't even that much that it was real-time strategy. What really got me there was uh, the story behind it. It had uh, huh. really good campaigns. Yeah. That I hugely enjoyed playing and were, that were heaving a ton of background information at you. And I enjoyed that very much, especially, the, of course, the Greek campaign. Yeah, and you remember the whole Greco-Persian thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which was why my father got me the game. And I really enjoyed playing just the campaigns for the stories they told, which was actually pretty interesting because it also, for the first time, really opened up my mind for other cultures outside of this typical scope. And uh, when I got to play it a bit in multiplayer, uh, with my friends, actual LAN parties back in the day, um, I, for the first time, started getting an interest, for example, into Japan or the early history of Japan, uh, because my favorite nation were the Yamato. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, as far as I know, there was no uh, Age of Empires before Age of Empires um, in terms of turning you know, civilization into a real-time strategy game, essentially. Um, Mm. Did you... um, Let me put... uh, So, the grand strategy games we're going to talk about that you stream today, some of them are more straight-up war games, some of them have civilization-building elements. Um, But did you enjoy the the civ element of Age of Empires as much as the the military aspect of it? Yeah, definitely. I've always... uh... It sometimes made my allies in uh, multiplayer <laughs> go crazy because they were like fighting to the nail and uh, sending their scouts out and raiding enemy villages. In the meantime, they watched over to me and realized, uh, okay, he has set up a nice-looking farming infrastructure that looks very realistic uh, with nice and straight roads and so on. But why isn't he doing anything? <laughs> so they were trying to zerg you essentially, and you were trying to move up the tech tree. As fast as possible. Yeah, and at the same time have a nice looking well base, but village. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really funny. That's really funny. Um, uh, uh, are you into um uh more casual um Civ type games like you know um like well there was Sim City of course. I don't know if Sim City was a thing. I mean Sim City was a huge thing here. Uh, it doesn't get talked about enough, but like Sim City was one of the 
seminal games in terms of computer gaming in this country, and then all the sim to games that came out of that, or games like Tropico, or you know stuff like that, um, into more more casual versions of of these games. Mm, actual, not that much. No, I, I try. I actually have an original copy of SimCity 2000 somewhere around here, um, but I never really got into that game. Uh, what got me going a bit, and it's actually not that casual because it goes deeper than it looks, uh, was the Anno series. Mm. Um, but mainly the initial title. Since then, I don't know. I, I have bit of, lost a bit of the interest in that kind of game. And I think, to be honest, it never went that deep. I have my moments where, where I enjoy playing them, but it's rare by now. Um, so really quickly, in terms of a pure real-time strategy game, um, uh, you know, you do enjoy StarCraft. Uh, <laughs> we could just have a laugh at that. Uh, but uh, you really like Command & Conquer. Um what was it? I loved Command and Conquer back in the day. As you know, I recently got like all of the Command and Conquer games, maybe like six months ago, and tried to play at least a few missions into all of them. I don't think they've aged great, just in terms of uh, controls, um, uh, interface wise. Very hard to control those games. They certainly have lots of personalities, and I love, love, love the original CNC games back in the day as usual when electronic arts buys a studio they slowly uh destroy it and tear it apart um and that of course happened uh with command and conquer i mean if you've ever played command and conquer 4 you know what i'm talking about um <laughs> but uh the certainly the first few were fun and even the intentionally campy ones like red alert were super fun as well um, just in terms of like their personality and so forth. What was it about Command and Conquer that that you liked uh, back in the day? Um, because uh, there aren't a lot of games like that anymore. I mean, StarCraft, you know, sort of officially wrapped up after ten years of content, and with the dis the disaster at Blizzard, um, you know, there don't seem to be any major new real time uh. uh um, old school version real time strategy games coming down the pipeline as much as we might want them. What was it about Command and Conquer that you like so much? <clears throat> I think it was uh, well. I to a degree enjoyed the story behind it because uh, you have to admit this. This video sequences, no matter if they take themselves somewhat serious in the Tiberium series or uh, less than serious in uh, the Red Alert ones. Sure. Um, what I really enjoyed about them it was always the scenario. That it was modern warfare. Uh -huh. You might notice a certain theme there <laughs> going through my interests. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it developed from the antique warfare stuff that sparked an interest in general warfare than to modern warfare. And that was what I think really uh, made the Command Conquer games my thing. Because I, I don't really remember any other strategy games, real-time strategy games at the time that focused so much on the modern, more modern period, even if it, it was yeah, fictionary, but still was modern period. And I don't really remember any games that did that outside of Command & Conquer. might just be that I missed them, but that's my perception of the time. Interesting, interesting. Um, so, okay, so Age of Empires 1 came out in 97, Command & Conquer 1 came out in 95, 
Uh, Command and Conquer 4, which essentially was the end of the series, was 2010. Um, And Age of Empires 3 wrapped up around that same time, if you include all the um, DLCs and so forth. Mm uh, you know, and, and in 2010, we were uh, we had the Xbox 360, which was like you know a huge thing. Nintendo was still selling tons of Wii's and portable units. Consoles were just dominating, you know, at, at, during that first decade in a lot of ways um, in, in the gaming market. But then, about three or four years ago, they started re-releasing. The Command and Conquer games. You started re-releasing Definitive Edition of the Age of Empires games. StarCraft did so much better than they expected uh, it, it would do uh, in this day and age. You know, Civilization started, you know, Civ 4, you know, had a lot of followers. Civ 5 was very big. And then Civ 6 is, you know, a sensation relatively to what it is. You know, the fact that I can play Civ 6 on my Switch and it's actually good it is absolutely <laughs> stunning. And I, I do want to connect these sort of um, uh, 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 traditional um, uh, RPG genre as well, like a Baldur's Gate in particular, which is sort of a mix of turn-based and real-time um, uh, combat. Uh, you know, based so Dungeons and Dragons is now you know cool, uh, and everyone's <laughs> doing it. And Baldur's Gate is back after all these years, and so forth. So all of a sudden. As I got back into gaming a few years ago, I had consoles, um, but now I just have a PC rig because all my favorite genres in various ways are are coming back. And yes, there's a lot of remasters and so forth, um, and and so you can stay busy with that. Age of Empires 4, I believe, is coming soon-ish. Certainly is in development. Uh, They're saying October 28th, 2021. You must be excited about that. I'm actually less excited than I would have thought because I think my love for uh, Age of Empires series died a bit with Age of Empires 3, which I didn't like at all. But I'm looking forward to seeing it at least and then maybe getting my hands on it to try it out. I don't think that uh, this kind of return strategy still gets me as much as back in the day, but I think I will most definitely buy it just for nostalgia. (laughs) But I think it's safe to say if it is let's say, a B-plus or better game, you might end up streaming a 1,000 hours of it based on your love of the series. Like, if, it, if, it's, <laughs> if it's super good, right? Um, yeah. Because as we're about to talk about uh, with some of these Paradox games, you stream tons of those games even though you have problems with them um, and so forth. I also want to add that, you know, one of the series... Um, maybe this is actually a good bridge because this is one that we both have... I mean, you play way more than me and way better than me, but I'm familiar with the history of it and, and know all the games. Um, and uh, this is where we can maybe sneak in some Warhammer, which is over the last 10 to 12, 15 years, is the Total War series, which yeah. has been very popular, which they keep releasing you know, new versions based on different historical or mythical periods, which has a formula, but each one's a little different, and specifically has a civilization uh, turn-based, uh, or not turn-based, a, a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A meta-civilization building aspect of some sort, and straight-up dudes on a field, uh, real-time throwing them at each other, real-time strategy aspect. 
I, you know, I, I, I'm going to ask you the direct question. I never fall in love with any of those games because I think it tries to do two genres at least at the same time, and I just don't think either of them are fully realized usually or mesh super well. Uh, talk to the audience a little bit about Total War um, and uh, when you got into it, but also sort of describe describe the, the games if possible because uh, you're much more um, qualified for this. Yeah. Uh, Total War. Ah. Uh. Uh, when did you get into it first? What was what was the one that got you into it? Oh, that's an interesting thing. Um, I was just starting to live alone for the first time. I had uh, signed up for a voluntary social year. That's something you can do in Germany. Uh-huh. Basically, when you come out of school and you don't really know what you want, which is, I guess, everyone has that face at around 17, 18 years old. Sure. And you just don't know what to do next. And, I did, and then we have this thing in Germany where you can sign up for a voluntary social year. In my case, that meant I was working with mentally disabled people. Um, some of them also bodily disabled, uh, Down syndrome and such stuff. And um, that came with living in you know, something akin to college dorm. Uh, and that was the first time living alone. I had my computer. I had a desk a chair and a bed. That was pretty much about it <laughs> in my room. And uh, the guys on my uh, on my floor were, were awesome. Absolutely we were great guys and it was a great community there. The whole the whole building. About just imagine about eighty uh, largely girls actually uh, and guys all hunched together in this building. So a lot of partying and so on. And I have to admit some drugs. Nothing sure. hardcore, but yeah, yeah. weed. That's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Bizzlecast. We in talk there. about that stuff. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And then uh, one of those guys, we were sitting there like in a group of, I think, 15 people drinking some beer. Remember, it's underage drinking in Germany. is absolutely legal. And yep. I saw something on the screen of the computer of my friend. And I had been playing, I think, Command and Conquer a bit and Dawn of War. Uh, that day, and I was looking at it, and it, wait, that looks like a real-time st- uh, strategy battle. What are you playing there? He just had paused it, and I wasn't even aware that that option existed. Huh. And he was like, oh, that's Shogun. Okay, what's well, Shogun? And he's like, oh, it's like you have a big strategy map where you move your armies around and can build buildings, and then you have these strategy battles in real time. I was like, oh, cool, okay, can I have the CD? Okay, and that evening I threw it on my desk, uh, on my computer, and started playing. And well, I had four days in a row without having to work. And I think I played about 48 to 56 hours of those straight wow. through Shogun. Yeah. Because it was great, it was incredible fun. Quick, a quick, I, quick side note: the first Shogun Total War was the first Total War, and came out in two thousand, which I had no idea. I, I, yeah. I, this is way earlier than I thought. I didn't think it started until the the end of the first decade of the century. But Shogun yeah. two thousand, Medieval twenty uh, two thousand two, the first Rome in two thousand four, um, yeah. and, and then you know Napoleon and Shogun two, uh, you know ten eleven years into of the decade which i'm more familiar with so you just because you yeah. mentioned shogun uh and i was unaware about how how early th- these actually started 
Yeah, I had no idea because when I got my hands on Shogun One, uh, that was actually in two thousand five. So Medieval and Rome were already out, and I had no idea. Um, yeah, I, I was playing. I, I think I had read about it in some magazines, but that was about it. So I was playing Shogun. Then uh, someone pointed out that there was the follow-up game, Medieval. I played that a ton. Then Rome, which was graphically and also controls, it was 3D. The other had uh, 2D battles, the other two games. And massive improvement overall. I sank so much time into that. Too much, to be honest. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, Medieval 2 followed, and when I was finally living alone, Empire at War, uh, not alone, but with my wife, we had married, uh, Empire at War came out, then Napoleon, then Shogun 2, and it was, yeah, I just played them all. <laughs> Interesting. So you you were playing the Total War games concurrently to the Command and Conquer in Age of Empires games. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, were, were you also playing... Um, the that generation of grand strategy games that I mentioned, the early civilization games, uh, or spinoffs like Alpha Centauri, Master of Orion, uh, you know, what what were really the first gen- generation of mainstream uh, real time strategy games, or the turn hardcore turn based um, war games. Uh, were you playing any of those during this period of, let's say, the early 2000s while you were playing uh, Total War, CNC-type stuff in, in Age of Empires? Uh, I was playing Civ Three quite a lot, actually. Uh, funny thing, I, I got my hands on a free trial copy of... Uh, uh, Civilization 3, and then realized that uh, when you ended the game before the one-hour trial period ran out, you could just restart uh, and continue the safe game. Um, <laughs> so you had basically the full game for free. Um, and I enjoyed that quite a bit, and then got the full game with the add-on. Uh, what was Beyond the Sword? Was that the add-on? I don't remember it. Huh. Um, that was pretty neat, and then I got into Civilization. I later got, I later got Civilization 4 too. Uh-huh. But uh, I never really got that much into them, though I enjoyed them play, uh, playing them. I also sank a ton of time into uh, Civ 5, I'm pretty sure. Actually, let me check. Okay, 880 hours in Civ 5. Woo! Um, but yeah, that was basically the turning point where real-time strategy started dropping and I took more an interest in global strategy stuff. So there was Total War and Civilization that brought me there. Sure. So um, what what happens... Uh, we don't need to go into your sort of personal history during this time, but what happened between, let's say, 2000, uh, when this all started, and, I don't know, 2010, 2011, 20. 12 uh to get you to where you are today where you're playing the really without you know highbrow uh large grant uh very um uh brainy intellectual difficult uh grand strategy games was there a um was there a break period at all where you weren't gaming um or uh were you playing some other games uh before well see i don't even know when hearts of iron one and so forth came out so again those might have come out earlier than i thought but like what was Mm -hmm. what was the shift into okay i'm still gonna play cnc for fun sometimes i'm still gonna play total war for fun sometimes but i really um am into the 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 um new generation of grand strategy games 
<laughs> oh, that's going to be great. Um, yeah, I actually had a period where I didn't game at all. Main reason being that, um, yeah, well, I had overclocked my CPU and it melted. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> and uh, at the same time, I had met my future wife. So yeah. I was like, okay, I don't need a game. PC because I have my wife, uh, my girlfriend, and I'm invested into this for the first time ever. Really invested into that relation, yeah. and I just didn't care about gaming really, to be honest. Which surprised me myself because I considered myself something of an addict. <laughs> and um, the funny thing is, when I, when we moved together, we married. We moved together actually and married at the same time in 2008, and. Um, then I had actually the money to buy my next new computer. And I installed the usual stuff, Empire, Total War. I'm sorry, the you said 2008? Yeah. Okay. And uh, I installed that and played. And it was okay. I had fun with that. But I noticed that I had moved on, let's say, brain-wise. <laughs> and I needed a bit more. It was just not deep enough anymore. I needed more intricate uh, gameplay on the strategic level. Uh, could, you, could you be a little specific, together. A little specific yeah. about, um, for the listeners, uh, again, with my listeners... Uh, they tend to be familiar with, with sort of general video game stuff, but not necessarily mm -hmm. the specifics of some of these games. What, what was it about it that triggered where you're like, this is good, but it's missing something? You give one or two examples of what it was either missing or something it had that you didn't like that uh, had you go in a different direction. Yeah. Um, I noticed it specifically with, uh, I think, Napoleon... Um, because, you know, I, I was into this stuff. I, I knew about the period, especially since a good number of the battles of, the, of that era were conducted on our soil here. And um, Which, by the way, yeah. re really quick side note, I own Napoleon from a Steam sale, and I've really wanted to play it, despite it being old and flawed, just because I love that period of history so much. It's um, super yeah. interesting, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as an example, um, we have um, old and still in use um, farming estate here, and uh, they still have a door on one of the barns where uh, three musket rounds of Napoleon soldiers are embedded. So, yeah, huh. uh, French Napoleon soldiers, yeah. And, well, I noticed that the, the battles in the game, they, they look nice, they have the smoke and everything, and even now still look okay, sure. but... You fight with 2,000, 3,000, at the highest, 5,000 men on one side and 5,000 on the others. Uh -huh. And then you look at the numbers of the battles at the time. It were, those were the first mass battles, the first real wars with mass mobilization, where you had, I think, what was it, the Battle of Leipzig? Um, uh. 170,000 men on the French side and like 200,000 on the Allied side. Uh-huh. That just didn't add up, so it was too small. It was getting too small in scope, and um, also these armies were just moving through the countryside, and sometimes they suffered a few losses because there was snow. But that was about it. It was missing logistic background to it, an army marches on its stomach, and so on. That was missing that layer. Um, but was it that? Yeah. Well, let me just ask though. So, 
if I can just, again, uh, I, I always relay things to movies because that's my specialty and, and my bread and butter, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is when you talk with people about why they don't like movies that they should like, for example, they give you a lot of specifics. But if the movie is good or really good, you tend to overlook it, right? Like we talked yeah. about with some of the historical things, you know, with Saving Private Ryan or those movies. But the movie's so damn good uh, that you can over overlook some of it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like a stupid comedy, right? I mean, there's so many <laughs> stupid comedies that aren't even good but are so funny that you don't give a fuck. Um, so my question here is, um, uh, uh, and this is sort of something for people who aren't hardcore gamers – uh, was there also dissatisfaction in just the gameplay that if if that hadn't been there, maybe you could have overlooked some of the historical things and, and, and logistical things that you were dissatisfied about? Does that make sense? Sorry, Jane, I think I just lost you. You there? Yeah, now I hear you again. Yeah. Like, like was there... Because let's be honest, you you know Total War much better than me, for example. But we both played mm-hmm. it, and we both are dissatisfied with the series uh, for, for maybe some similar, some different reasons. But like Total War has great stuff on paper, but whenever I play it, I find tons of gameplay things I just don't like. I don't really care, you know, which Total War it is. If they finally nailed the formula with one of them, I'd get into it. Um, uh, and, and so forth. So was there were there sort of some gameplay things that dissatisfied you as well that you're like, okay, I want to look for something a little bit different in my gameplay? Yeah, definitely I reached that point. I would say an example for overlooking the whole thing that I had issues with was Shogun 2, which I hugely enjoyed. Uh-huh. Absolutely love that game. Uh, I think it's the only Total War game I ever played on the highest difficulty setting and beat it with uh, the worst nation to do so. Is widely uh, considered Shogun 2 in 2011, widely considered to be the best of the Total War games, even among people who don't like them. That much I know, and I have it. And mm-hmm. while I haven't played a ton of any of them, I have played more Total War Shogun 2 over the years than all of the other ones combined. Yeah. Yeah, and I completely understand that. It it was basically the last time Total War really got me. Because, um, yeah, with Empire, with Napoleon, I had always this problem of the size because it was the mass mobilization thingy and it was just missing the size. And for Shogun 2, the size fit again. It was acceptable. Map was nice. General gameplay was nice. So I could overlook those issues. And... Uh, after that came Rome 2, and that was just gaming hell. Interesting. Yeah, and that's where they lost me. Because right before that, um, right before Shogun 2 came out, I had started uh, dabbling into a game just purely for the reason that I now had a child. <laughs> that's an interesting thing. Sure. Um, when you, when you, I had a baby boy with my wife in 2009, and um, it was wonderful. And, well, he's now 12, but I still love him, of course. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my wife had an emergency C-section and was knocked out, basically, for the first three or four months, largely, of his life. Um, I happened to be uh, unemployed at the time due to becoming seriously ill for a few months. 
And yeah, in Germany, that's not that bad. Uh, you still get, uh, I think for a year about, you get the about the payment that you received last time before you were fired. So that's pretty sure. comfortable, to be honest. Yeah. And at that time, it fit great because we had the little boy and my wife couldn't care for him. So I did. And he left sleeping um, in my lap. Uh -huh. But I had to rock back and forth until he fell asleep. Uh -huh. So I sit in, in front of the computer and I have him on one arm. And I have only one hand free to play. And that makes playing a Total War game where you need one hand on the keyboard almost impossible. Sure. And what I did was I looked for games that I could play with one hand and that I could pause when it was necessary because I had this baby on my arm. And that turned out to be Hearts of Iron 3. <laughs> Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. What? Wait, you can't do that with Total War? Pardon? You, you you need two hands for Total War? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. <laughs> so Hearts of Iron 3. Okay, so let's jump into it. Paradox Interactive. So, yeah. I, I, I did... So, okay. So my little quick history here is, like I said, play, grew up playing computer games, not a giant console. I mean, all my friends had consoles, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. I would play at their place, but I was a computer gamer. Again, strategy, RPGs, that sort of thing. Although I also had like Doom and Quake. You know, people don't realize that like only PCs could handle the best shooters back in the day. Um, uh, you know, now you can play all those games and they look great on the new systems, but like friends would come to my place to play, you know, Quake 3 because only my computer could handle it and they didn't have, you know, systems like that or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, then I went to college and graduated in 2005 and then I was, you know, looking for work. So basically between 2005 and about 2012, I, was, I wasn't really gaming. I did have, a, you know, like a portable Nintendo, like a DS, but that's about it. Um, and then in 2012... Uh, I got really sick uh, with a, uh, a really annoying long-term disease. Not fatal, but annoying long-term disease. And um, I really had nothing to do. Uh, and, well, I, I, you know, I was, um, I should mention, up until fairly recently, I've been a Mac user just because I was in the music business for a while. And when you're trying to make really good music and video stuff on a budget, Macs are actually... It's changed now. PC Windows is getting a lot better, but for for a long time, you know, if you had a Mac, you could really do a lot professionally in terms of music. And so, as a Mac user, there were some gaming options. I had Civ on Mac, but you know, not a ton of stuff. So, 2012, I was like, okay, I'm bored as shit. I can't go anywhere because I'm not feeling well. Uh, the PlayStation 3 is on sale now because the PlayStation 4 is coming out. Uh, relatively soon. So let me get this, and I got that with Uncharted and some of the, like, you know, sort of more famous PlayStation games. First time I ever owned a console and just loved it and really got back into it. So I played the PlayStation 3 for a few years, and then I got a PS4, and then I, what happens to all people who are computer gamers, where you start to get a little bored and dissatisfied that every game is an open-world RPG or, you know, a shooter or whatever. Um, and uh, got a I had a really good Mac at that point, and, um, you know, about 2017, I was like, all right, my Mac's pretty good. They're starting to make games on, uh, release games on Steam that work on Mac pretty well. What do they got? And I stumbled on Stellaris. 
um, which mm-hmm. is exactly the updated version of Master of Orion, which is one of my favorite games ever from the 90s, which is for you guys out there, you're in the galaxy, you're conquering star systems, you're building civilizations, you build big fleets, they look awesome, you throw fleets at each other, um, and uh, it looked amazing, it played great, I was able to stream it on my Mac, that was one of the first games I like streamed heavily, 2017-2018, and then I started exploring pa- uh, Paradox as a company, um, and, and looking at games like uh, Europa Universalis, and so forth. So, because I... Uh, I, uh, uh, this is, as I thought, going to end up being a multi-part podcast. I've kept you on a lot, but I do want to talk about Hearts of Iron, which I've been streaming here in the background. Uh, Hjalf playing uh, Hearts of Iron, which he loves st- still uh, playing, obviously, and, and streaming. Now it's Hearts of Iron 4. Um, if you could do a, a twofer, as we say here, talk about, uh, on your end, discovering Paradox Interactive and what they were about and what they had, and also to the listeners you know, who they are and that makes them, uh, I think, very unique and, and special and distinct. So you coming across it and what it is, and then we'll spend a few minutes talking specifically about uh, Hearts of Iron. Okay, yeah. Well, you heard already how I stumbled over them, basically, you know? uh, just purely for <laughs> the reason that I could play it with one hand. Sure. And... Well, because it was the World War II scenario, that also applied to my somewhat changed focus at the time. And, well, yeah, that's their speciality. It's basically a real-time game, just that the time that is going through is either in hours or days per uh, every few seconds that yeah. takes through. Uh, I like to call it modified real-time. And you could pause and, it, which is key. Yeah. Which uh, yeah. with Stellaris, which again was my gateway to this, that was the first time I had ever discovered. Uh, I mean, again, Baldur's Gate, those RPGs had something similar, but it's much different with a strategy game. I loved that about Stellaris, that it wasn't just clicking turns like with Civilization, which can get very boring and take a long time um, after a while, or just kind of wrote, you know. Uh, I love that I could pause Stellaris, set everything up, and then just shoot it into the future and, and see where things were going. So, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that was also great because, of course, yeah, one, you need it. And second, I, I knew that kind of pausing from the Total War game. So yeah. that fit perfectly. And But instead of playing on, uh, yeah, border, map with borders that was just representing, like, uh, let's say, 10 by 10 square kilometer area, uh, you had the world uh, to fight for. And that was very different. Uh-huh. And, yeah, of course, initially the World War II scenario, in your case, Stellaris, the galaxy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, and the other games, then, uh, their specific time frame focused areas. Were, I mean, I think Europa Universalis also has the whole world, basically. Um, Imperator Rome focuses on the, uh, yeah, antique important areas and the Crusader Kings games on uh, the medieval areas, so no Americas in that. But it's basically the world to conquer. If you want to, you don't have to conquer, at least not when you're playing uh, anything else than Hearts of Iron. And that was initially, it was Hearts of Iron 3 purely because 
World War II, my interest, and it played somewhat like the history. And of course, there's always this aspect in every game that is historically centered that you can change history. That uh, appeals. Uh, that is nice. That appeals to someone. Something inside us that we want to see how it works out differently. Yes. And yeah, in Hearts of Iron 3, that was pretty nice. I even modded it a bit. But uh, in the long run, it got a bit stale when you have when you have worked out how the uh, how the mechanics work, and that's probably one of the weaknesses of all paradox games. They have certain mechanics that just work too well for you as a player, and the AI just can't keep up. And then I, to be fair, there are very few strategy games where the AI can keep up with that without oh, yes. without cheating, right? I mean, yeah, it, it just. You know, I mean, I, 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 I don't do a lot of um, PvP, you know, but I play a ton of StarCraft and stuff. Um, and I just play on hard levels with the, with the AI. And I'm just so used to back in the day, uh, you know, that this is the, uh, this is the case. Um, and then when you actually play a person, it's hard in a totally different way if they're good. Uh, no, no two ways about it. Um, you know, we'll maybe save for for the next time discussions about you know <laughs> why it's still this way. You know why it's taken so long. I mean, we're able to create you know almost sentient robots at this point. If you look at what the Japanese are doing, uh, but we can't create great computer AI. Um, uh, it, that would be an interesting discussion. Um, so what you just, you just keep pumping the difficulty level up and let the, let them cheat, uh, and still try and beat them. Mm, yeah. At least in Arts of Iron 4, I do that because it's combat focused and the other games I have the option to work with diplomacy and I just don't need to exploit the AI being dumb in, at warfare. Uh, I don't have to do that. I just can role play. Yeah, that's where my bit of love for some certain role-playing games comes in that I can actually role-play a king of the period or something like that in these games. And so that gives it more flavor. In, Hearts of, in the Hearts of Iron games, not having a proper working combat AI yeah, makes the game stale over time, while the others have this aspect that everything can play out very differently depending on how the AI acts be it diplomatically, warfare, uh, trade even, in EU4. And by now, I think in Stellaris 2, we now have a trade aspect, right? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so a couple things that the, the games do well, uh, the Paradox games, um, uh, is um, each game has, like you sort of mentioned there with the role-playing thing, has sort of a distinct element, even though they sort of look and perform perform the same in different ways like one of their more recent releases crusader kings is really has a relatively strong rpg element uh character oh, element yes. where developing characters and dynasties and so forth is very critical to what's going on uh what stellaris does great among things that stellaris does great is first of all it's gorgeous you really feel like it's space <laughs> Um, you, you can, and I have just spent, you know, hours just looking at all the galaxies and stars and, uh, weird, you know, space whales. And it, it, I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a piece of art almost. Um, oh, yeah. but, but even more so than that, um, is, uh, 
it it does w what Master of Orion did, um, and that works a, a best with space games, and I love it so much, which is because you're traveling from one system to another, the way that you strategically, um, uh, you know, block. Uh, 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 major intersection points or, you know, control wormholes and so forth is very, very strategic in a way that's different uh, than, uh, you know, obviously land-based geographical combat where you're trying to control areas in a much different way. Um, and that works really well with the game. Uh, but I wanted to actually t t tie this uh, with what you just said about the problems that the games have in addition to AI, which is Stellaris is one of their only games that has actual win conditions. Um, yeah. And by that, Bizzlecast listeners, I mean you uh, you can win or lose Stellaris by being the most powerful in any number of categories after a certain amount of time. In fact, in Stellaris, you can set at the beginning how long you want the game to go, which is very much like a, bo a modern board game, like a Euro game, where there's a certain number of turns and then it just ends. Um, which is great and uh, has led me to play hundreds of hours of Stellaris, but I know that there's an ending point at some point. And when I started to play things like Europa Universalis, um, uh, Hearts of Iron and so forth, and discovered that it w not only was way too complicated for me to possibly spend the time to get good at, but also that there weren't win conditions, part of me, <coughs> excuse me, Part of me really likes this concept, man, and part of me thinks that it's a bit of a cop-out um, to not at least offer win conditions. What is your feeling about these huge games about conquering the world or so forth, or at least the continent, but there's no real ending to it? Does it take away from your enjoyment and the satisfaction that you get, or do you just enjoy, despite the AI problems and despite lack of win conditions, do you just enjoy the process so much um, that it, it, you don't really care? Uh, actually, the latter. I, I don't really care, I have to admit, uh -huh. because you set, your you set your targets yourself. That's probably one of the biggest aspects of the... That's why they're sometimes called sandbox games, because you can do whatever you want in the end. Uh, it's now the specific case of House of Iron 4 there, I do, absolutely don't like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, that's a time period where that absolutely doesn't fit. They have done it nonetheless, and it's possible to play like that, but I hate it. Um, but in the other games, Crusader Kings and in uh, EO4, uh, Europa Universalis, there it isn't a problem, because you role-play a nation, or in case of CK3, even more a dynasty, so largely individuals, and country isn't even that important and can change a lot, but you set your goals yourself. For example, for me, my goal was uh, the last time I played CK3 um, as a very, very, very small and minor Norwegian noble. I started as him. I managed to grow. I managed to get a big family of witches. <laughs> all witches. And uh, then my, uh, my witch coven dynasty invaded <laughs> England and uh, turned the North Sea into a huge witch coven uh, reformed oh, Norse that's empire. Funny. That's great. And that I loved. It was so fun. And that's yeah, that's how you do it. I have seen people that uh, have aimed for example, instead of becoming colonized, so they were playing 
EO4, where colonization plays a huge role. Um, but they played like Ethiopia, which is moderately well developed for um, uh, a country at the time in Africa, and they end up colonizing Italy. And that was their target. So, and yeah, I was going to say, um, I actually don't mind it either, like in wind conditions, because going again back to the original Civ, Master of Orion, Alpha Centauri, decades ago, into the present where I've played hundreds of hours of Stellaris, so maybe 100, 150 hours of Civilization Six, and 100 hours of Civ Five, blah, blah, blah. If you combine all of those thousands of hours, the number of times I went start to finish on those campaigns is a minority, a, a tiny minority. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I usually just get bored with a certain civilization or scenario and want to change it up. Um, the other, though, is, man, and um, uh, we're going to uh, finish this first part talking about you as a streamer in Hearts of Iron, but really quickly... I also think in addition to AI remaining a problem over the decades with these games, the end game for games that do have an end game like Stellaris or Civilization, the length and grind of the end game in these games is also a problem. And so while there is technically a finish goal in Stellaris and Civilization, the end game on especially on hard levels and with you know a lot of rivals and so forth is such a grind in terms of time and effort that I end up just stopping anyways uh, and being satisfied or not satisfied with what I've done. Does that make sense? And so it, it actually makes the games that have an official, uh, end game like Stellaris and the ones that don't like Europa Universalis less different than you think because I'm as likely to go 40 hours on an EU scenario as I am on a Stellaris scenario and not quote unquote win or lose in, in either sense. I don't know if that makes any sense what, in, in, in whether you think there is any uh, you know uh, way to solve the fact that with these giant strategy games, even if there is a win scenario, it's almost impossible to implement it in a way that's not drawn out and so forth. Yeah. No, no, I get you there completely. Uh, with Stellaris, uh, yeah, I think I have n I have not a single Stellaris game that counts as one, I think. <laughs> I I've only lost. I've only lost because I get impatient and just throw everything at the enemy and then they kill me. But, like, in games where I'm actually yeah. doing good, yeah, I'm like you. I'm not sure I've ever finished a giant Stellaris game where I I'm playing, you know, for real. Yeah, yeah, I have the same problem that I've never really finished a Stellaris game. I have always reached a point where I was the dominant power in the galaxy, and the endgame crisis that you can get was defeated, and then it was like, yeah, okay, I could now conquer without real effort the rest of the galaxy, but what would be the point? <laughs> and e even, even declaring war in Stellaris is so complicated. It's a yeah. big problem, um, and... Uh, They've tried to do things like making managing po your populations easier as the game goes along, but you end up wanting to micromanage anyways. And being able to speed up the clock, again, because there's so many things that need to happen, being able to speed up the clock doesn't really help. Um, so let's move into uh, you as a streamer. Um, 
uh, how, when did you start really streaming? Why did you start streaming? Uh, and when did it become something that you wanted to do regularly and then sort of developing enough of a following um, that uh, it became, uh, you know, uh, uh, more than just an activity for you? Um, yeah, it had actually to do with Hearts of Iron 4. Um, I had at that time started writing for a small fan-made magazine. Um, and we were actually big enough in Germany that we got some free stuff basically from uh, various development companies to test before release. And one of those was uh, Stellaris at the time, actually. That's how I got it. <laughs> I actually have a press copy of it. Interesting. Um, and Hearts of Iron 4, because they, I think that was just a few months between them. And Hearts of Iron 4, I actually noticed that there was only, a, at the time, that was, I think, when was that? 2018? When did Hearts of Iron 4 come out? Oh, maybe I'm getting completely wrong. But when it came out, there was only a single guy in Germany who was occasionally streaming Hearts of Iron 3 huh. and would be streaming Hearts of Iron 4 at release day. And I was like, okay, okay, streaming, interesting, never really interested in that, but hey, let's try that out. And I started streaming my pre-release version of Hearts of Iron 4, which we never got anything about that we weren't allowed to do that because streaming wasn't that big at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I started doing it that evening, and suddenly there were 400 people flooding my stream. Whoa. Because I was literally the single guy in the world who was streaming the new upcoming super highly anticipated uh, Paradox release worldwide. Huh. I was a total shock to me. I didn't really get what was happening. I had no idea how much 400 people watching a stream actually was. It's a buzz. Um, it gives you a buzz, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that completely took me by surprise. And I streamed it, I think, two or three days, basically up to release. And then I dropped it again. I had no idea what that meant to have 400 people from day one on. That's a <laughs> lot. You could, you could have become an affiliate almost immediately if you had continued. Yeah. 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 That was absolutely, yeah. I look back at that nowadays and think, oh, God, you were stupid. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to know, though, unless you're, yeah. 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 Um, well, but it was fun in a way. And um, I was playing a lot of War Thunder at the time because that was easier uh, besides studying than playing those deep games like uh, Hearts of Iron and so on. I had quite some fun with that. And well, I was pretty good at it, so I streamed it a bit on the side because, yeah, some others were watching it from the forums I was frequenting. And um, it became more of a thing when I knew, when I actually got uh, enough people on there regularly that uh, Twitch got me affiliate status. And suddenly there was money involved. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, that was actually a driver behind because suddenly it was like, sure. oh, okay, yeah, well, it's not much money, but it's a bit. And yeah, then it's okay. That's cool. And. Oh, yeah. Uh, then I had a community all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. It was small. It was small. I had also done, of course, the YouTube stuff, but uh, I did, just didn't have the time to really continue it due to having, by then, three children, and streaming was just easier. And But I had developed a community, and I still have, and it's still developing, and that it's just fun talking with the, to the people, with the people in exchange, and, yeah, talking a lot about history. Absolutely. That's really cool stuff. 
So this was, when was this where you had the dual realization that the money, it was involved, but also that you enjoyed it? How many years ago are we talking here? Mm, I would say about, wait, we have, we have mid-2021. I would say about two years ago. Two years ago. Okay. Yeah. And, and were you still mostly streaming uh, Paradox games back then? Mm, Total War and Paradox, yeah, because I had gotten a bit into uh, playing a certain mod for huh. Rome 2. Huh. That made it more historic uh, historically accurate. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, that was fun streaming. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it just didn't get me as much, and then I transferred back to Paradox largely. But I will give the Total War games another try soon enough. Yeah, so, um, you know, when streamers start getting uh, popular over periods of time, like really popular, you know, thousands of followers, and, you know, on Twitter with tens of thousands of followers, and, you know, they've been mm. doing stuff, they can literally stream anything. Um, because the people are following them for their personality in the community as opposed to just the games. Um, you know, one of the most popular and loved uh, female streamers o- over the years is Dodger, who, who I followed for a long time, Dex Bonus. Um, and uh, Dodger's so famous that she can stream like Minesweeper and get 10,000 viewers <laughs> because she's talking to her viewers the whole time. They don't even give a shit what she's actually streaming. Um, or she'll do a dual stream with one of her buddies where they're playing, you know, Life is Strange or some weird, like, vampire mystery thing or, or whatever, you know, um, and, and so forth. So have you found, I mean, let's be honest, in the last six months, it's been mostly Hearts of Iron 4 uh, that, <laughs> that, that you've been streaming. Although I've seen you stream Total War and EU uh, and so forth. At this point, do you just stream what you want and the community just seems to like it and so it has good synergy there? Um, do you uh, ever consider, um, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like, like, at what point do you sort of almost lack agency in what you can stream because you're maybe afraid of losing the f- people that you do have that you know are enjoying what what you've done in the past, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I think I think I get what you mean. Um, I I had this yeah, let's say the worries about uh, losing followers and so on for quite some time, which was why I was refraining from streaming stuff that I enjoyed playing and playing privately. And I still do to a degree Witcher 3, because, for example, because Witcher 3 is a very private thing for me, because I have, like to play it in a certain style, and I think that's a private thing, because I invest my personality in how I play a role-playing game. After all, role-playing, right? Um, so I'm invested into that somewhat privately, and so I enjoy playing them alone. Right. But in other cases, I would like to stream it. And I never really tried, because I was in fear of losing people, because it's something completely different to that what... I usually stream, but by now, honestly, it doesn't, of course, I'm still very small compared to the big ones, but I don't care really anymore, and it's just, it's fine if I lose people, if I don't make any much, not much money from it, it doesn't matter, I can stream what I want, and some people will always be there and be talking. Sure, sure, which is funny because... Games like The Witcher 3 or Horizon, those are the games I do stream. 
uh, be, mm. but because that's my you know my favorite genre of um, uh, games to play long long periods of are action RPGs um, and uh, thus um, you know also uh, games like The Witcher and Horizon I've played multiple hundred hour plus. Um, you know, campaigns, and so I have a really fun time, you know, talking about it and so forth. Um, but and so, uh, uh, just to say, you know, you find things that are in your personality wheelhouse, right? That you enjoy playing, and then also enjoy sharing with other people. Um, and you talk about that. You talk about history uh, um, on your stream uh, with games like Hearts of Iron, and that's true. And that's part of what I loved about it, yours from the beginning. But you also just enjoy uh, the wackiness that happens and talking about the wackiness that happens, right? So some of it, I think, is just <laughs> gameplay based um, and, and so forth. Um, so um, all right, man. Well, uh, as usual, I have a million more questions than we have time for. I have one or two more quick ones. If that's okay, and then we'll do. You can do a little self promotion, and we'll have to save this for for a, a part two whenever we get around to that. The first is compare and contrast very briefly. We've mentioned these games now a few times. You talked about streaming Total War, which you still do occasionally, and then the Paradox games. Um, you complain about both, and it's you know it's a hallmark of hardcore gamers that we complain about everything. You know that's just that's just part. Yeah, it's like being a film buff. You're gonna complain about everything in, in movies that you see. Um, what is it about the paradox games uh, that you just keep coming back to over a total war? Which let's be honest. I don't know sales figures. I have to think Total War sells better than the Paradox games, at least until recently. Um, uh, especially because they have things like the Warhammer property, which we didn't get time to talk about Warhammer. Um, and, and, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, Let me put it this way. Do you think these Paradox games are objectively better than the Total War games, or it's just something that fits better with your style and personality? I guess in that case, it's subjective for style and personality. I prefer them, but I also, exactly for that reason, consider them better. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> hand in hand. Um, the Paradox games are deeper. They right. have far more layers, far more areas of uh, interesting gameplay than Total War. Total War is conquering, fighting battles, building the army for it, and having the money to run the whole thing. And... In the Paradox games, you have so many more layers, even in Hearts of Iron 4. It's not just warfare, it's not just battles, uh, combat, producing the equipment for that. You have to choose the right equipment for the right moment, the right unit for the right moment. You have that to a degree in the Total War games too, but not to that massive extent. It all, yeah, somehow goes together to have an effect that can sometimes completely take you by surprise, and I love it. Uh, as an example, that is a very outlandish thing, but I have seen it happen. Um, in Total War, let's take Shogun. You can take your monk, your agent, behind enemy lines and trigger a rebellion in a province. And you have some neutral, randomly operating rebel army there, but that's not really a threat to the enemy. Um, in Hearts of Iron 4, you can use your spies to basically simulate a whole army 
on a big area of the front line, something that, uh, yeah, that comes through the history note, uh, the U.S. Army actually did in the Second World War. And um, you can do that. And in multiplayer, that means your enemy, or even in single player, the AI won't notice that a certain part of your front line is far thinner than anywhere else. Uh-huh. And then you can outplay the enemy. And that's something that Total War on these many layers never gets, because then the enemy can spot these fake divisions by having his spy planes up. And you can counter those spy planes with your, uh, with your uh, interceptors again. And... There's so many layers in Hearts of Iron or the other Paradox games that you can work with that are just not there in the Total War games. And that's, I think, is one of the most as- interesting aspects for me. I sort of hinted this earlier. My problem with Total War is you have two entirely different games mushed together. And just yeah. when you're getting into the combat, you're thrown back into civilization building. And just when you're getting into the civ building, you're thrown into combat. It's almost like... You know, like mini games. You know, like like Gwent in The Witcher, or you know, <laughs> uh, this has been around forever. Uh, you know, the Japanese pioneered this. You know, you have these long role playing games, and so they throw in these little mini games that you can play um, to kind of break things up if you want. Um, to me, Total War seems like just two big mini games. Uh, yeah. as opposed to one actual game, uh, which is infuriating because I love the historical periods and I even love like the Warhammer stuff. Um, but I find, uh, let's say, um, oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess to go back to Age of Empires, right? I mean, Age of Empires lets you have your cake and eat it too in, in that in, in that way, right? You're doing civilization building and you're doing warfare, but the screen you're not you're not jumping between you know different games within one game. Does that make any sense? Uh, and yeah, as a, as a subsidiary to that, with Total War three, Warhammer three coming out, which I don't think any of us have super high expectations for. Who knows? Maybe maybe it'll be better than we think. Um, is there any way to solve that, or is there just a fatal flaw in the Total War um, uh, formula that can only be solved by tearing it apart and, and starting over again? I think you are spot on with that, because uh, one thing I noticed a lot when I play Total War, you always reach a point where you just have enough of one of the two layers. Uh, be it that you have the perfect army composition that the AI just can't beat in the battles, and you send your army in and click, you don't even fight the battles anymore, you just click on auto-resolve, and you know you will take casualties, but you don't care anymore, your army will be ready within the next two turns, yeah. and uh, at least you don't have to fight another stupid battle. Right. And the other variant is you have enough of the other strategical scope, uh, or not the other, the one strategical scope, the civilization aspect, because to have enough money to raise your armies, you build every city the same way. Yeah. Because it's optimized to that. And yeah, yeah, then it gets boring. And that's basically the problem of Total War. Both layers together work until they don't. (laughs) Right. Right. And, and, you know, I'm going to be talking a little out of both sides of my mouth here because, like, I like Age of One, the Age of Wonders games 
a little bit more. Um, that tends to shift between actually one that you and I have talked about and is agreed upon among hardcore gamers as one of the classic uh, game series of all time are Heroes of Might and Magic. Mm. Um, and Heroes of Might and Magic, you know, famously tri- combined an RPG aspect and a strategy uh, fighting aspect. Uh, one of the first times ever, as far as I'm concerned. But the, the roaming around the countryside doing RPG stuff was really just supplementary to the epic battles. Um, yeah. And it's like it's like XCOM, right? I mean, there is a sort of RPG aspect in XCOM. You're developing technologies. You're on your ship. You're recruiting people. You're modding weapons. But you know, ninety percent of the game you're spending, you know, on the ground doing tactical combat um, against aliens. Uh, maybe and maybe that's the key. Is that Total War tries to do like a fifty-fifty split between those two, and maybe they should just decide on one or the other um uh you know like for example stellaris uh, uh, uh like you, you don't actually do that much combat in stellaris and it's beautiful to watch but you don't really have that much control over the tactics of it you know you pretty much know uh, who's gonna win when you get into a battle for the most part with stellaris and while that can be frustrating at times because you want to micromanage it it makes the game flow a lot better um, yeah. and I guess all the paradox games are like this, right? I mean, when you send yeah. five infantry divisions and three tank divisions into Yugoslavia or whatever, right? Like it, 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 you probably don't want to be micromanaging, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Is that, mm. is that part of what, um, uh, is appealing, uh, to you is that you get combat you can see the cute little soldiers on the screen doing combat but at the same time you're not like like responsible for it if that kind of makes sense yeah yeah that plays a role definitely that definitely plays a role yeah um yeah it has its moments where you you want to micromanage more probably than you are allowed to but uh i really like the aspect that you are not constantly switching between you are the leader of your country and you are only the leader of a small army of a few thousand men. Uh-huh. But instead, you assign generals that do their job because you are the leader of the country and that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're not necessarily responsible for every single man on the battlefield. Yep. And that I like. Okay. Uh, so two final questions. Uh, I really appreciate you having you on and... Uh, would love to go on more uh, in, in the future to um, talk about, you know, maybe the future of gaming. Uh, but before uh, I do that sort of closing question and we promote your stuff, um, where do you see yourself in the next, you know, 6, 12 months? Uh, you see keeping up the streaming as you've been doing? I, I know, obviously, between, you know, raising a family and COVID, it's hard to predict anything ever uh at this point um uh when it comes to planning long term but uh are you enjoying streaming enough that you you see yourself continuing it and uh you know like would you do even more if you um uh were able to make it like more lucrative or do you actually prefer it as a, a, a casual side activity that yeah makes you a couple bucks but is mostly uh just for um for personal satisfaction I think I would actually like to do it more if I could, 
currently I can't. Probably there will be time where I can again. It's currently, it's it's just a side project and it's fun at that, especially when you are uh, surprisingly successful in some areas. Sure. Uh, like last, uh, I think last month. Uh, no, it was actually this month. Uh, we had the Paradox uh, Hearts of Iron for Community Cup. And all of a sudden, you had, in some cases, multiple hundreds of people there uh, that were watching the streams because you were casting a tourney between very good teams yeah. in multiplayer. That's awesome. That was something that I really liked, and that brought a lot of attention to the whole thing in total. And I would like to continue that, and I think we will do that <laughs> with the others together that I'm uh, cooperating with. And if that could become bigger, that would be cool. I hope it becomes bigger in the next few months. Um, and final uh, big question here is, um, are you seeing or would you like to see any evolution in sort of streaming and streaming culture? Or do you think it's in a pretty good... I mean, obviously, you know, Twitch can always get better in various ways. I'm not really talking about that. But in terms of sort of streaming culture, um, you know, for example, Discord has been a huge... Uh, boon to streaming because now there's a one-click way of people who watch a stream together to now join your community and it right i mean I, I think discord has been a big part of your success is that people can be talking about uh stuff together not just when they're watching your stream uh, on the disc on uh, the, the Twitch chat, right? But they can talk, you know, twenty four seven about the stuff if they want to. Um, yeah. So that's been a big thing. So, uh, any developments you'd like to see? Any any that you are seeing? Um, or do you think that it's it's in a pretty good place right now? Because honestly, dude, like, I, there's no way five to seven years ago, uh, even I, I could have possibly imagined. Um, that that it, this would be such a huge thing to the point that you know you even have things like critical role like just people playing dungeons and dragons with hundreds of thousands of watchers but you also have like you know politicians and celebrities and stuff streaming whatever the hell they want um, you know uh, uh, on on Twitch um, where where do you see it going in in the next you know however many years uh, or just do you see sort of a slower evolution. I think it will become far more common. It's basically the same as with PC console gaming in general becoming more common because it's just the people that do it are mature now. It was once seen as something for the kids, but those kids are grown up and are still doing it. And it's going to be the same with uh, streaming of gaming and whatever other activities you can stream. Uh, be it tabletop games, be it uh, Dungeons and Dragons and sure. other uh, and paper RPGs and so on, yeah. or just talking and yeah, even those bathtub streams. I mean, they have the audience. Why not? It, it, I think it will just become more normalized. Bath, bathtub streams. Modern culture. Yeah, ASMR. You know, I mean, it's it's pretty wacky some of the stuff that's out there. <laughs> um, but you know, like. Uh, as we uh, as we say in the uh, entertainment industry, you got to give the people what they want, you know. Yeah. And so, if the people want it, then you give it to them. And uh, as long as it's not illegal, then you know it, it, there's going to be a place for it. And you know what? People who have been on the fringes, nerds, goths, freaks, whatever you want to call them, over the years, finally now 
have place online together and be weird or like anime people, you know, and be weird together. And so I have to, I have to celebrate that, you know, just personally growing up a nerd where it was really not cool uh, in my society, in my culture, it was really not cool growing up a nerd. Uh, and just the fact that there's that space now and that the cool kids are playing Dungeons and Dragons and watching Twitch streams, I never could have possibly foreseen in a million years. And uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a, a very positive thing uh, overall um, it, yeah. is my feeling. Yeah, online culture, how it has developed has definitely its negative aspects because you don't only bring the, let's say, nerd culture in this case together, but of course also the other fringe stuff comes together yeah as we like to say you always had this one idiot in your uh, in your village sure. that everybody loved about but now he has a bunch of other idiot friends online he can talk with um but on the other end you had all these nice people that not necessarily were outside of the social scope but rather had just different interests that now can find other people that have these interests all over the world uh, in my community are two Japanese guys. <laughs> right. Uh, and we're all still coming together. Uh, we have French, Poles, even Russians and so on. Uh, everybody there together talking about interesting stuff. Totally. That we are all interested in and that my, the mainstream, if that still exists even, uh, is not that interested in. But we come together from all across the world and can talk with each other and enjoy our interests together. And that's a really cool thing. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This was great. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully in the next couple months can have you back on to do a part two where we really talk about um, the future of, of gaming. I, I think it, it would be a great topic um, because, uh, you know, because it involves things like technology and even politics and so forth. Um, and not just the day-to-day -day stuff, which is important, uh, but I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a futurist in terms of my interests, and I'm sort of curious where this goes. So thank you so much uh, again for being on, and uh, uh, before we let you go, uh, promote your channel. Um, now, guys, you can get to um, Health's uh, social media, which you also can promote, but you can also get it just from the Twitch channel, uh, yeah. as well. Um, so where can people find you twitching? Um, a, B, uh, when, I know it's a little irregular, but when do you normally twitch? Um, and C, are there any things coming up, uh, that, uh, that you wanted to promote? So first, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, usually on Twitch, um, Schaufner, uh, underscore, uh, history gaming, because I largely stream history, not exclusively, but I do. Um, and from there, well, Twitter, uh, YouTube too, though currently that's a bit on a hiatus, uh, though those videos are pretty cool, I think. Sure. Um, and big things are currently not that much planned, but I will just continue to do my usual stuff. That means uh, Fridays and, th and Saturdays um, around 8 to 9 p.m. Central European Standard Time. I'll, I'll be online and streaming my stuff. <laughs> what final question? What is one game you've never streamed that you keep maybe being tempted to stream or thought about? Now I know something we need to get to talk about was you streamed uh, um, as many people did the re-release of Mass Effect, the Legendary Edition. <laughs> um, one thing I've asked you off air is 
you know, oh, you know, what are your favorite non-strategy games? You mentioned Witcher, of course, uh, mm-hmm. and, and Mass Effect. I think those are two common ones that a lot of people like, even if they're not hardcore gamers. That would be another discussion is um, uh, different genre games. Uh, so you stream some Mass Effect, which is always a lot of fun because those games are totally bonkers. Um, are there any games that you would like, and maybe you'll never do it, but like if you could just stream any crazy game uh, uh, that you haven't done so far off the beaten path, what, what would it, what would it be? Or maybe you want, or well, soon. Ah, uh, that's a good question. Like you said, you said the Witcher is a private experience, so that wouldn't be one, mm. but like something in another genre that maybe people would hate and would alienate your audience or you get a new audience, you know what I mean? Like just, just, uh, or maybe if it's not a game that you've played, but it's on your list of games to play that you'd want to stream. One that's going to come out. And before that, I think I haven't streamed it, but I think I'm going to do it a full run of the whole new Wolfenstein series which is completely at odds with what I usually stream. It's a shooter. It's not a strategy game. It's as historical as hell. And, um, but yeah, I have, I've played the, the new two games and I enjoyed them. And I think that would be a super fun change of the usual stuff. Well, <laughs> as a Jewish person, uh, I could say that we Jewish people love things like Wolfenstein and Inglorious Bastards because it gives us, escapist uh, revenge fantasy that we didn't actually get in real life. So (laughs) actually Wolfenstein was the first adult game I ever played. I was kind of a kid and my dad was really unsure whether he should let me play it, but he knew that I knew about it and that it was in the house and because it was killing Nazis, he let me do it. So uh, (laughs) it was like, well, I really don't want my son at this point killing anybody, but also, uh, although also, dude, you know, 3D shooters didn't exist at the time. And so me and him both being computer guys, he almost let me do it just because it was such a revolution in computer technology, if that makes sense, uh, yeah. as much as it was killing Nazis. So wait, are you saying there's new Wolfenstein games coming out? Uh, I think there was some rumors going around about basically a Wolfenstein 3 coming out. Yeah. Did you play any of the last three or four of the games that have come out? Uh, I played uh, New Order and the one that came out after... Wait, what? New Colossus. Uh, not that I'm mixing them up. Uh, we had Wolfenstein the New Order. That was in America set largely, right? Uh... uh... New Order. Oh, what's the other one? Um, New Colossus. Right. New Order. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah. New Order and New Colossus. Those two I've played. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, both are good. New Order is generally considered better. New Colossus mm. um, was very heavy on cutscenes and storytelling and stuff like that, which is great. Um, I actually am one of the few people who really liked Young Blood, which was sort of the side game about his two daughters. Uh, mm. where, where BJ disappears and the two daughters become kind of s- even more psychopathic Nazi killers. It takes place in Paris and they have a whole underground thing in Paris. And it's very unlike the other two in that it's not really story driven. It's sort of like, it's more like uh, 
uh, the Division Two or the Tom Clancy games where you just get missions and you go out and you do missions and you come back and you upgrade your weapons and you go do your missions. But it did have a co-op element because there were the two daughters who were twins. And so you could play with someone else, which is you know always fun in those games. Uh, but yeah. it was also fun not having to be on rails a little bit when it comes to storytelling, just being in Paris and getting to pick where and how you wanted to kill all the Nazis uh, and, and so forth. So it didn't do great review-wise. I think it sold okay. It also plays the best in terms of the technology. A new Colossus had a little bit of uh, tech issues, at least on the PC or so forth. Um, I'm thrilled that the Doom and, and uh, um, Wolfenstein games are back because those id Software games, you know, are so uh, revolutionary back in the day. I just wish they would bring. I think they're going to because they just re-released Quake for the first time. Quake was always my favorite because uh, it was scary like Doom, but it was more scary in, in the Bioshock uh, sense of sort of uh, modern, sort of more modern horror um, as opposed to just insanity running around killing. Uh, I guess Doom's not really scary in that way. You're just running around killing aliens or demons. Uh, Quake was very atmospheric, hoping they bring that one back as, as well. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll mention this to you off mic, but a book I highly recommend um, everyone read uh, and, and you certainly would love that was written about 10 years ago is called masters of doom. And it's the history of John Romero and John Carmack, who are the founders of id software, the inventors of Wolfenstein and doom and so forth. Um, because not only does it give you an inside look at the computer industry in the early nineties and the creation of 3d shooters, which completely revolutionized everything in gaming, not just shooters, right? 3d environments and dynamic lighting and so forth. But they were both extremely, extremely eccentric people, similar to like not like the way Steve Jobs and some you know Elon Musk are eccentric. They weren't eccentric in that way, but you know what I mean. The big tech geniuses all have some weird eccentricities. These two guys were just two poor kids from Texas whose brains were super big, uh, and. Uh, it talks about all the politics of the company and so forth. Masters of Doom, highly recommended. So, okay, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate it. Um, glad you've been able to do some streaming uh, in the past few weeks, and uh, hope your hope your family is healthy. Um, and please send my best to to them. Yeah, will do, man. Thank you very much, and same to you. All right, guys. So, um, oh, oh, one more time, the uh, the URL uh, for uh, for. Your site? Oh, sorry. I'm gonna pull this up. Give me a second. Uh, it is. I mean, I'll, 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 I'm gonna link this in the copy, but just so we have it on on audio here. Let's see. What is the connection? You there? Yeah, I'm there. Give me a second. I think I just lost the connection for a second. I think my router and router is about to reboot. <laughs> so uh, it is. Um, I can just do it here. Let me see. Yeah, it's not letting me copy it over. Okay. Um, it is twitch.tv uh, backslash Hjalfner underscore history gaming. So I will. I will. Um, I will link that in the copy. Uh, so you guys can uh, check out because it's super fun 
Kjalf is a, a blast to watch. He wears great uh, costumes uh, and really gets into games, which I'll be honest, man, you know, as much as I love history, these games can be boring as shit in, in, in the wrong hands. And you are definitely <laughs> the guy. And uh, I, I'll say it if no one else is, you know, if I'm, if I'm Paradox um, or one of these companies, you're someone I would absolutely sponsor um, or at least give some love. Um, I, I guess you've gotten a little bit, but even more, you're the kind of guy that could sell these games um, because you have, well, you're clearly extremely smart and good at these games. You have sort of an everyman attitude to this whole thing. So uh, there's your ass. There's your ass kissing for the day. Uh, all right, mm-hmm. thanks, thanks y'all so much. This was yeah. a blast, and uh, that's my pleasure. Oh, and we, maybe we should do a, a, a Witcher podcast next time because season two is coming, uh, and we got to talk oh, yeah. about that. Did you see the anime? Uh, I did see it, and I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so maybe we'll do Witcher next time. All right, Bizzlecast listeners. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, Hjalf. And um, we always do two-hour podcasts, so I lied to you big time about how long this would take because I didn't want to scare you away. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and now you'll be ready for next time. Thanks, listeners. Yeah. This was a blast. Uh, this is one of my favorite guys online. Check him out. I'll post it. Uh, and hope everyone is happy and healthy as can be out there. But for now, may the force be with you, and the Bizzlecast is out.